Now, Father, once again, we come to this blessed gospel of the Apostle John, and we praise you, and we give you thanks for this opportunity to once again study the mystery and the glory of our Savior, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Lord, this is not old to us. This is, this is glorious and fresh, as if it were new to us this morning. I pray that you would refresh us with it and remind us how blessed we are to have such a Savior as this. And Father, we pray that it would cause us to worship you and him and the Holy Spirit, giving you the glory that is due your name because you are worthy. And Father, we go throughout the week and we face problems on the job and difficulties in the home and just struggles in life in general or, or blessings in life. And so many things distract us away from the glory and majesty of Christ. It's just good to be here, to come, and to be reminded of how blessed we are to know him and to have found life in him by your grace and for your glory. Help us now, Father, to comprehend what is incomprehensible to the praise of your glorious grace, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We are in John chapter 1 this morning, and uh, it was my intention to make it through the rest of this prologue today, through uh, verse 18. Uh, I had to confess before the first service that uh, my ambition had changed somewhat. I had hoped to make it all the way through verse 14, the, just that verse, and I didn't make it. And uh, let, me, let me just tell you that where we're going this morning was not only surprisingly refreshing to me, but deeper than I ever imagined it would be, more glorious than I ever imagined it would be. We've memorized these verses, and yet I praise God. I praise God for church where we can come and have someone who has been freed up from the other cares of life in order to study Scripture so that we can learn week after week what is here and what would be obvious if we had time to study it as in-depthly as, as you've given me the privilege of doing and to come week after week and just mining the, the jewels and the gold that is here in the text. And, and what a privilege it is for me to be the one charged with the responsibility to do that. I have been so refreshed by this text this morning. We are only going to look at verse 14. We will not even look at the whole of verse 14 because it is so marvelous what the Spirit has to say to his church. Now, we've invested four weeks of study so far trying to get our arms around what the Apostle John wants to communicate about Jesus' qualifications as the Son of God, our Savior. He's taken great pains to explain who Jesus is so that we will keep on believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing we might have life in his name. And we've learned so much about him in our study. So far, it's only been 13 verses. We have, we have 21 chapters and we've learned so much about him. We've, we've learned things that, that, John, that perhaps would have been clear to the early readers, but not so clear to us. And though we've learned much, today we come to the statement that reveals the main point that John has been pushing toward since four, five weeks ago when we started this from the very first words of the very first verse this is what he's been pushing toward. This has been his goal. Now, John began his gospel, as you know, by explaining, just by way of review, that the beginning of all things is found in the logos, the word of God. The word which was with God in the beginning and is, in fact, God the creator who created all things and sustains all things. He is the Lagos, John explains, and is therefore the origin of life. 
And he came to the world as the light that intentionally stepped into our world in order to expose the darkness that is here, that we might turn to him and find him to be everything that God had promised in the Old Testament that he would be when the Christ came, our Savior and our God. Now, the original readers of this text would have, would have seen this passage as shocking stuff. This would have been beyond amazing to them. I tell you that because sometimes if you don't get a clue that that's how you should respond, um, then, then we kind of miss it. I remember my wife and I, years ago, when we were first married, watched, and we had, we had watched this medieval movie that we liked a lot, and so we, hey, let's get another one, and we got another one, and we didn't realize it was a comedy. And we went the whole way going, this is dumb, what? what, what? We don't understand this. And then we moved to Calvary Bible Church and met some people, and they said, did you ever watch that movie? It's the funniest thing we ever saw. And we thought, oh, is it supposed to be funny? And then we watched it again. Oh, it's hysterical. That, okay, we're, we're prepared. Listen, sometimes if we don't know what God expects of us from a text, we miss it. And so I'm telling you, the original readers were blown away by this. It is incomprehensible to them that this sovereign, impersonal force that they knew as the Lagos would have turned out to have been a personal being who actually came to earth? That's shocking. That was new. That was beyond relevant. The Greeks had always thought of it as an impersonal force. But John is realizing that what... John is helping us realize that what they thought was an impersonal force is none other than God. The person of God. And that God had come to earth. But the point that would have been most startling to the original readers is found in the first words of verse 14. And we haven't read the text yet, and we ought to. So let's stand together in honor of the word of God. I'm going to read to you verses 14 through 18, just so you kind of see where this is going. Get a flavor for the context. So here we go, starting in verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory... Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. You can be seated. Now, I said that the most shocking part of this, and really the centerpiece of this whole prologue, the whole introduction from verses 1 to verse 14, comes down to four words, and here they are. The Word, the Lagos, became flesh. (laughs) I mean, we can't hardly even put ourselves in a position of what it must have been like for the early Greek readers to read that. The Lagos became flesh. It tells us that God took on humanity. That infinite became finite. That eternity somehow stepped into time. That the creator entered his creation. This is unfathomable. Unfathomable. You know what that word means? What is unfathomable? Unfathomable means when you're measuring the depth of water, you measure it by what? fathoms. Oh, you know what this word means. And so here's the idea. You're out in the ocean of God and you take your line, you throw it over the side and it goes 
you see the knots flying by, one fathom, two fathom, and it keeps going and going and going and going and going. It goes for eternity, and it never touches bottom. That's unfathomable. That's God. But this is the chief statement of the entire prologue. It it is the great statement from which the whole introduction of John has been directed, and it is the fountain from which the rest of the gospel of John flows, gushes forth. Everything comes out of this statement. If we don't get this statement, then we're going to miss the point of the gospel of John. The word became flesh. The logos became flesh. Now, why is Jesus qualified to be the object of our faith? That's the question he's answering. And here's the answer. Because he is nothing less than God in flesh. There's no one like him. There's no one. Never ever has been, never will be, So this morning, I just want to spend a few minutes helping us think through the glorious uniqueness of Jesus Christ. And as I said, we're not going to make it through the first verse because just the first few words are more than enough to fill our time. And and just to put your mind at ease, I think I've mentioned this before, this first 18 verses is so theologically rich that it's taking us a lot of time to kind of scratch through it, because every, every time you put your shovel in, you, you find more gold. Um, and the rest of the Gospel of John is glorious and wonderful, but I'm anticipating that we'll get more traction and, and we'll move faster once we get beyond the prologue. But this is, this is great stuff, and I don't want to r- rush it. And so if you're taking notes, number one, we're talking about the, the glorious uniqueness of Jesus. Jesus was gloriously unique in his humanity. Now, I would just encourage you to pick up a system, good systematic theology and just read the Christology section, the section on Christ. If you've got, you got a good systematic theology, you're going to spend a lot of time reading about this union between the humanity and the deity of Christ. But let's just talk about it for a few minutes. Verse 14 Again, here's what it says. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. What made Jesus so unique? He was unique because he is both God and man. In the theological world, this is usually referred to as the hypostatic union. No, it's a big word. You don't have to remember it. It's not going to be a test, or it's not going to be on the test. Afterwards, um, a hypostatic union, which speaks to the union of deity, that's, that's just a fancy word for God, and humanity, just a fancy word for man, God and man being unified or united in one person. Not two people, one person. And so the Lagos became flesh. The Word became flesh. Now, we need to... There's been a lot of heresy throughout church history. A lot of groups have gotten this wrong, and they've kind of fallen off the beam this way or that way, and some groups have said uh, Jesus was... um, Jesus was all God, he just looked like a man, and others say, no, he was, he was really man, but he, he did some, he was empowered by God in a unique way, and then there were some other variations of, of those teachings. That is not what John or any of the other apostles taught. Jesus is fully human and fully God. Now, let me say it a different way. Everything that it means to be a man, Jesus was, lacking nothing. Just like Adam, without sin. Everything that it means to be a human human man, Jesus was. And everything it means to be God, Jesus was. In one person. The word became flesh. 
Now, some people have stumbled on the word became, and it has led them to uh, false teaching. Let me, let me understand the word became um, for those of you who care. This, but, but it is important. Became. Now, it could mean, in some contexts, and I'll give you one, it could mean that something was one thing and it became something else. For example, in the Old Testament, in the story of um, Sodom and Gomorrah, you remember Abraham, Lot, Lot lived in Sodom. The angels came and said, uh, we are, uh, God has got to send us to rescue you because he's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And so come with us, flee for your life. And so Lot told his sons, they didn't, his sons-in-law, and they didn't, um, they didn't listen to him. So Lot and his wife and his daughters, they ran for their lives. And as they were running, something happened to Lot's wife. What happened? She became a pillar of salt. Now, what does that mean, became? It means she stopped being one thing and became another. She stopped being Lot's wife and she became kind of a condiment on the kitchen table. A little salt. <laughs> but she's no longer Lot's wife. But watch this, same story. Lot, however, Lot, however, before he lost his wife, became the father of Moab and some other sons. And he did this not in the sense of he stopped being one thing and became another, but that he was Lot and he became the father of Moab. So it's not subtraction, it's addition. And it's so important for us to see that this is what Jesus did. When Jesus came to earth, he was still the Lagos of God. But now he was Lagos, the Word in flesh. The Word, God as man. Or it's appropriate even to say, the God-man. The God-man. Jesus became everything that human beings are, yet without sin, and yet, in becoming human, he retained everything that it means to be God. Now, some of you theologically-minded people are going to say, what about Philippians chapter 2 and the, the kenosis passage? I understand that he set aside some of his privileges for a while, but he never, ever, in any way, shape, or form, stopped being God. If he stopped being God, then his death would not have accomplished what it needed to accomplish for all who would believe. The fact that he humbled himself to become flesh, however, is what I really want to focus on. Um, because we could spend all morning and all month and more just talking about the dual nature of Jesus Christ and what that meant and how should we understand it. Church councils have written documents through the ages to clarify on this, we're not going to do that this morning. But here's, here's what I want you to see. This is a sermon, not a theology class. And so, uh, let me tell you what I tell, told the group this morning and why, why I want to go in this direction and not that direction. It's because there's a danger here. We can get so deep into theology, theological knowledge becomes the end in itself. And you remember what Paul said about knowledge. Knowledge causes what? Pride. And you know what? If all you do is stuff your mind with theological knowledge, oh, there's such a danger in this when you go to seminary. You meet guys like this and you can become a guy like this. And, and people who are constantly studying the Word of God have to battle this all the time. Because the Word of God can become your textbook and your knowledge of the Word of God can be the means by which you say to other people, be impressed with me. And what you're really doing when you do that is you're telling people, look how glorious I am. Watch this. Worship me. And when you go there, you're going in a very very dangerous direction. A very dangerous direction. 
and yet is the occupational hazard of everyone who studies the Word of God seriously. But here's the thing. It doesn't have to do that. Sin and righteousness are always a matter of the heart, right? You don't have to sin in that way. And God doesn't, obviously, God doesn't want you to sin in that way. And so why do we study theology? Why should we understand these deep truths of Scripture? Answer, worship. Not worship of me. Not worship of whoever it is who's doing the teaching. But worship of God. And so the teacher, when he's studying properly, he's doing it as a reflector, reflecting the glory of God to his people, reflecting the glory of God to his people. So it's as if they're not even seeing him, but rather seeing Christ. And when that stops happening, something is seriously wrong. This is education for exaltation, right? And if our study of theology never leads us to worship, then the process is aborted. God's end for the study of his word is destroyed. And woe to you. Woe to you. And so I commend the study, the deep study of scripture. But oh, beloved, be vigilant. Guard your heart with all diligence. Make sure you're approaching the word of God as a joyful worshiper of Christ and not just a hungry theologian who wants to make a name for himself. Now, once again, what I want to focus on is the humility of Christ. The fact that he humbled himself to become flesh should drive our souls to worship. Think about the incredible condescension. I pause there because I'm always tempted to say condensation, and that's not right. Think about the condescension of God, the logos, in becoming flesh. Now, what is condescension? Condescension is to leave a, a, a place of superiority to come down to a place of inferiority. It means to move from the top to the bottom. If I step off this platform and come sit with you, it is in a very base sense coming down. It's a condescension. We would see this, for instance, in the military. If um, miracle of miracles, a four-star general were to go into the mess hall and sit with and fellowship with a private in the military. I mean, when, when does that ever happen? Well, it usually doesn't. Kind kind of stays with kind, depending on your station. You stay with the people who are fitting to your station. Not so with God. The Lagos, who is the beginning of life and created everything and sustains it by the word of his power, He didn't stay aloof. He humbled himself. Do you realize, is it Psalm 113, where where we're told that God must humble himself to behold the things that are in heaven. To behold the things that are in heaven. And yet he humbled himself seemingly infinitely more by becoming flesh. Now, now it's interesting here, his choice of words. The Lagos became flesh. Now, now why didn't he say, the Lagos became a man? Anthropos. Why Why did he say, the Lagos became Sark's flesh? Why did he say that rather than, the Lagos became an Anthropos, a man? That's a good question. I'm glad you asked. Some theologians believe, and I think this is, this is worth thinking about, some, some believe that John, who could have very easily chosen the more common word, he chose this word to emphasize the extent to which Jesus humbled himself to become one of us. 
The term flesh has a variety of definitions in the New Testament, but here it refers to human nature. Not the sinful nature, but human nature like Adam had a human nature. One which, living in a world under the curse of sin, was subject to weariness, pain, misery, and death. Here's how John Calvin put it. He said, when Scripture speaks of man contemptuously, it calls him flesh. Now, though there be so wide a distance between the spiritual glory of the logos of God and the abominable filth of our flesh, yet the Son of God stooped so low as to take upon himself that flesh subject to the same miseries as we are. He became a mortal man, a mortal man. So mortal, in fact, by definition, he was able to die. Now consider for a moment what it would take. Just, just try to picture yourself. How would this feel, this condescension? How would it feel? Uh, I want you to think for a moment, um, what would it take for you to fully identify with the people whom you perceive to be beneath you? And I, I'm just trying to, I'm picking some categories here, not, not to, to slander any group of people, but just to help you feel what sinful people would feel if you were, for some reason, taken from the the station of privilege that you are in now and put in a lower position or chose to. For example, what about the homeless community, the, the, the filthy person that you see or people that you'll see on your way home from your pretty comfortable church to your pretty comfortable home, you will likely see homeless people who are begging for money. What would it take for you to become one of them? You'd say, <laughs> not happening. And think about the, the dirt poor people who live in the garbage heaps in Haiti. Or, or think about what it would be like to move into one of those Muslim communities in Libya where our U.S. ambassador was just murdered. To move in to the neighborhood of a people who worship a different God, who speak a different language, who are of a different skin color and culture and are your enemies. Take your family there. Take your children there. I mean, what would it take for you to leave the comforts and privileges of your home in Fort Worth, Texas and fully immerse yourself among people like that? I don't know about you, but for me, take a lot. It take a lot. I'm just saying. Most of us would never even consider doing such a radical thing. We love our comforts. We love living among people who are like us. And you know what? They love, they love, they don't want to be here. They want to be with people who are like them. We love our comforts. We love living among a people who are like us. And the places I have described are I mean, dare we admit it, repulsive to us? And yet the condescension of Christ to take on flesh and live among us required him to stoop infinitely lower than anything I have just described. And yet when the fullness of time came, the amazing thing is, Jesus never hesitated. He came at precisely the moment he needed to come. He was right on schedule. He never hesitated. Born in a stable. Does that make your, does that make your heart want to worship and adore him? Jesus' condescension reveals his glory. When was the last time you worshipped him? Because of his condescension. Lord Jesus, when I think of people I don't want to be around, 
I am those people. And yet you came to me. I'm worse than those people. And yet you came to me. Thank you. I mean, just put all your theological argumentation aside. Put your pride aside. Put your... Put everything else aside and just think for a moment what it took the Son of God to condescend to you, to move into your neighborhood, to move into your house, to eat your food, giving up all the privileges, rights, and honors of heaven, having lived for eternity past without ever experiencing the effects of sin, never disunity, never conflict, Never anything but pure worship. And then to come and be rejected. Knowing that he would be rejected. And knowing it was the only way to save me. I tell you, this is education for exaltation. This is all about truth to lead us to worship. So come, let us worship and bow down, the psalmist says. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Does Jesus' humanity cause you to worship? It should because it was gloriously unique. Now, we can't talk about Jesus' humanity without also talking about his deity, and that's what John does next. Jesus was gloriously unique in his deity, in his deity. Now, I realize that saying Jesus' deity is unique is to make an absurdly obvious statement, borderline on dumb. I mean, Ken Basinger always harasses me. My kids do, too, when I say dumb things from the pulpit. Uh, Ken Basinger's favorite. He's in Ukraine now, so I can pick on him. Uh, pick on him, picking on me. At one time, I was trying to describe something, uh, the glory of where Christ lived, and I said it was a palatial palace, and he just thought that was hysterical. <laughs> well, if it's a palace, it's palatial, right? Um, or the time I said uh, uh, that God said to Moses in front of the burning bush, take off your feet because you're on holy ground. Didn't even know I said it. Just, just to make it clear, I know what I'm saying here. Um, Jesus' deity is unique. No other person in human history could legitimately, legitimately claim to be God. No angelic being, no demonic being, no being, if there is any other being, no one can claim to be God. Nevertheless, the way John presents Jesus' deity here, reveals to us the glory with such subtlety, it's profoundly powerful. And so we're going to spend the rest of our time right here. Here's what John says. The Lagos became flesh. And, what's the next phrase? Dwelt among us. Now, this is where a little Greek helps. And there are people in this room who are better at Greek than I am. But I know enough to see that there's, there's a well here, that a, a, a mine shaft here that we need to go down. Dwelt, the word for dwelt here in the Greek Iskenao, which means to live in a tent or tabernacle. How many of you like going camping? It's that time of year. How many of you have gone camping? We'll go camping this year. Okay, I'm the only one with my hand up. <laughs> I'll probably go camping somewhere this year. We're Boy Scouts. We love to do that. My family loves to do it. If the Scouts don't, we just love to get out there, live in a tent. Not for a long period of time, though. We love to get home. <laughs> take as much home with us. Uh, that's why we have to have a big vehicle. And we bring it all home, and, and then we're more comfortable at home. And so why do we do it? I don't know. That's a different... Um, believe it or not, this little word, 
This little word causes the whole passage to literally burst into life. What John is alluding to here is this. When he says, the logos tented or tabernacled among us. What's he saying? We get a clue further down in the text in verse 17 because in verse 17, we read this a little earlier, he mentions two things. Watch this, verse 17. For the law, that's the first thing, was given through Moses. That's the second thing. Law and Moses. What does that have to do with any of this? I mean, John, why'd you bring the law and Moses into this? Well, in the English, it, it doesn't seem to make any sense. In the Greek, it makes sense. If you understand, if you understand that dwelt means tent or tabernacle, then the affiliation with the law and Moses makes perfect sense. You remember your Old Testament history, right? Testament saving Israel out of Egypt. They come to Sinai, they get the law. They're supposed to go, they could take a five-day journey. It was only supposed to take them five days, cross the desert, get to Kadesh Barnea, the border to the promised land, go in and take the promised land, happy ever after. Didn't happen. They got there, uh, 12 spies went to spy on Canaan, 10 were bad, and what? Two were good. Joshua and Caleb were the only ones who came back and said, look, the people are too big for us, but it doesn't matter, we have God on our side. And the other 10 said, look, we can't do this. And representing the people as the majority, God said, that's it, you're not going in. 40 years, everyone 20 years old and older, dead in the wilderness. Just follow me, we're going to wander the desert for 40 years. I'll take care of you, I'll give you water, give you food. And this is the way we're going to do it. I want you to put up a tent. And the tent was called the Tent of Meeting. And the Tent of Meeting was where Moses would go to meet face-to-face, as it were, with God. It was also the place where the priests would go to make their sacrifices and do other things that I'm going to tell you about here in a second. But uh, here's what James Boyce says. He's, uh, uh, he says this, The word here for, for tent or tabernacle refers beyond any question to the portable wilderness tabernacle or temple of the Hebrew nation. The tabernacle was the center of their worship and the most important single object in their camp. And so when, when John says that Jesus tabernacled among us, we got to stop. we got to think about what this means. Now let's take a moment to refresh on our Old Testament history, especially relative to the tabernacle. I want you to picture in your mind, I'm, I'm just going to help you, engage your sanctify imagination here for just a little bit. And let me... Let me open up the temple for you. Let's say that you live in Israel. I'm sorry, you live in the wilderness with the nation of Israel, and, um, and you're wandering as, as a nation. Now, where are you going? You don't know where you're going, but you have a leader, and the leader's not necessarily Moses. He's the human leader, but the real leader is this, this blazing, smoking thing. And at night, it gave them light. And in the daytime, it it gave them a very clear uh, thing to to follow. It was was this pillar of smoke and pillar of fire. And the Israelites called it the Shekinah, the glory of God. It was his presence. It was a manifestation of his presence. It, it It wasn't all God, but it was God choosing to manifest his presence in a very tangible, visible way. And so here's what would happen. The camp would be camped in the desert, and suddenly the, uh, they would notice, oh, the Shekinah is, has gone up, and it's moving forward. Everybody pack up your tents. It's time to go. Everybody pack up their tents. They follow, follow the, the Shekinah, follow the Shekinah, follow the Shekinah. You're watching the smoke. At, at night, they could travel at night because they had light. And then at some point, the Shekinah would stop. And that was the signal. All right, everybody set up your tent. There was very specific places that each tribe was to set up, 12 different places. And it was very, very organized. And it all 
kind of was built around this thing in the center called the tabernacle or the tent of meeting. It was the center of everything for Israel. And around the tabernacle, the Levites, the priests, set up camp. And then outside of that, all of the other tribes in very specific order. And so let's say you're one of those, you belong to one of those tribes. And um, you're walking through camp, you're a priest, you are going to enter the tabernacle. What will you see? Well, first of all, you'll see a lot of tents and a lot of sand. But when you get to the middle, you'll see a very unusual looking structure. It's kind of a tent. And what it is, is these curtains that are hung on, on lateral poles that are in the shape of a large rectangle, larger than this, this building, probably. Didn't have a roof on it or anything. It's just, a, just a kind of a, a curtain wall with a, a curtain doorway. And let's walk through the doorway. You walk through the doorway, and there's kind of more sand, but you, now you're on the inside. And you see in front of you a real tent, and it's got a roof on it, and I mean, it looks like a tent, and it's got layer upon layer upon layer on top of it. It's even got porpoise skin to keep it waterproof in case it would rain. And so there's this tent, but between you at the front door of the curtain wall and the tent, there are other things. Over on the left, you have this altar, and the priests are slaughtering sheep, and it's a bloody mess. It's a butcher house. And there's fire on this altar, and they're pitching these, these they'd skin the lambs, and they'd, they'd take out the kidneys and some of the guts, and they'd, they'd throw this thing up on the altar, and they'd burn it. It's a sin offering. Over on the right, you can imagine, there's blood everywhere. Over on the right, there's this basin. And I don't mean a basin. I mean a basin. I mean, think about our baptismal pool when we set it up here in this room. Bigger than that. Way bigger than that. In fact, when... Solomon built this for the temple, the permanent structure. It was so big, he put, he put eight bronze oxen, huge bronze oxen under it. And I can't recall off the top of my head how many gallons of water, but it was this massive uh, bottle of water, I mean, uh, uh, container of water, basin of water. In fact, they called it the sea. It was also called the laver. And you know what they did with it? They had little, little spouts on it, and they could wash everything. They wash their bodies, wash their clothes, wash their instruments. You know, I mean, they're killing these animals and there's blood on everything. And so you got those two pieces outside. Let's go into the tent proper. You, you open, open the, the, the next tent curtain and you go through. Now you're inside. And let me tell you what you see. Let's just stand there at the door for a second. You're standing and you're looking around. There's only three things in there. But it's beyond glorious. You know Why? Because besides the curtain wall behind you, and, 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 and maybe a, a wooden wall, there's a curtain wall in front of you beyond everything else, but the other walls, probably the wall that you just stepped through as well, is paneled, and all the paneling is covered with gold. Can you imagine? I mean, imagine this room, no windows or anything, and everywhere you look, it's just this beautiful gold. Everything is gold. Now, what do you see? On the, light, uh, on the left, you see this, what you might call a candelabra. It was called a menorah. It was actually called the lampstand. And it was one of those things, when Hanukkah comes around, you always see that picture of the lamp, because that's what Hanukkah is about. We won't go into that. Um, but it was a lot bigger than that. And it was standing over here on the left. And you know what? It had, had these little oil lamps on top that were shaped like a, um, what was it shaped like? Uh, like a what? Like, a, like, a, like an acorn or a, it was some kind of a blossom. Pomegranate blossom, is that right? Anyway, something like that. It was beautiful. And it had, had a little flame coming out of it. You say, well, how can these little flames light the whole room? Listen, if all the walls are gold, you don't need much light. The room's full of light. And so on the left, you see this, this lamp. This beautiful, multi-armed lamp. It's got many flames on it. On the right, there's a table, and it's covered with gold. And on top of the table, there are these little loaves of bread. You know what the table's called? It's called the table of show bread. They're showing off their bread. 
God's showing off his bread. And the, and, and the priest would come in, and they would replace the bread. They'd always replace it with fresh bread. And it was showing, here's what it was showing. God is your provider. He will always give you the food you need. The light, God is your light. He'll always give you the light you need. There's one more thing in that room. And by the way, this room is the larger of the two rooms, and it's called the holy, of, it's called the holy place. And there's one more thing. If you look straight ahead, there's a curtain, and beyond the curtain is another smaller room. But before you get there, in front of that curtain is a, is a small altar. It's the altar of incense. And the priest would go there. Remember Zechariah, John the Baptist's father? He was standing at the altar when the angel appeared and said, your wife's going to have a son. His name's going to be John. He's going to be great, and he's going to be the forerunner to the Messiah. Well, that altar of incense, he would go, the priest would go, a priest would go and offer incense on it, and it represented the prayers of the people. God, save us. Send your Messiah. Remember that? Okay, and let's say we're the high priest, and we get the privilege and the responsibility, probably a terrifying responsibility for these guys, especially in the tabernacle where God's presence actually came. And we, we walk through the curtain. What's in there? Guess what? Walls of gold. Light, but not from, not from the lamp, from God himself. There's one object in there. It's not very big. It's this chest And it's covered in pure, what? Gold. This gleaming chest has a lid on top, has two angels. We don't know what they look like, different artists guess. Two angels sitting on top of the chest or or behind it, however it was. And the lid of the chest, you know what the lid was called? It had a name. It was called the mercy seat. You know why it was called the mercy seat? Because it pictured a judge or the king coming and sitting on his seat of judgment, his throne, rendering judgment upon his subjects. But it wasn't called the seat of judgment because there was never any negative judgment, at least not in God's perfect covenantal system it wasn't supposed to be. It was always the mercy seat because The animals were being sacrificed on behalf of sin and the blood was being brought in and sprinkled on the altar to cover the sin and so that God's judgment would always be mercy, mercy, mercy. Trust me, follow me, repent, believe me and it will always be mercy. It's called the mercy seat and the very presence of God. This cloud, this fire, this smoke, a portion of it, at least, as best I can tell, would come into the tent. But it wouldn't go into the big room. It would go in the little room, the Holy of Holies, right there in the Ark of the Covenant. And it was glorious. Are, are you kind of in your mind? Are you seeing glory? Glory. Say it with me. Glory. Gold, light. Bread, incense, smoke. Okay. There's the picture. You say, okay, what does that have to do with Jesus? Everything. (laughs) Everything. You see, everything about the temple pointed to something else. It was only a signpost. It was a shadow. It was a picture. It was a type. It wasn't the substance of the real thing. It just... It only pointed to the real things. And the real thing, and the real thing is Jesus. The laver, the sea, the water basin, you know what it was? It was an instrument of physical cleansing. But in Christ, we have true cleansing. By the washing of water, which is not water at all. It is the spirit of the living God in Christ. In Christ, we have been washed of all of our sin. Remember 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where Paul lists off all those sins, and most of them were sexual in nature. He lists off all those sins, and, and he says, I've warned you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, people who act like this go to hell. And then he says, but you were washed. 
You're not like that anymore. You were washed, Hebrews 10, 21 and 22, since we have a great high priest over the house of God, the church, that's Jesus. Let us draw near, draw near to what? Draw near, hold fast, draw near, hold fast, draw near. That's the theme of of the book of Hebrews. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart, full of assurance of faith. Really? Entering the presence of God with assurance? How can we do that? Having our hearts sprinkled clean from our evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. When did that happen? The day the Lord Jesus, the day the Lord Jesus applied his own blood and righteousness to your account. You were washed. You don't need a physical labor anymore. You don't need to take a bath. Remember Jesus when he was washing the disciples' feet? He came to Peter and Peter said, you're not washing my feet, I should be washing yours. And Jesus said, if I don't wash you, you have no part in me. And, and Jesus, uh, Peter said, well, then give me a bath. And Jesus said, Peter, chill. <laughs> you, don't, you don't need a bath. You're already clean. You're already clean. You, you, just get, you get dirt on your feet every day. It just needs to be, you just need a little cleansing every day. You wash your feet. The altar of burnt offerings was a place where the animals were offered to God. Their blood was spilt to cover sin. It was the kafar the covering, the atonement. But Jesus Christ was the ultimate sacrifice for sin in his body. That's why John the Baptist said of Jesus, when he saw him by the river of Jordan, he told the world, behold the, what? Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Listen, we don't need an altar of burnt offerings. We don't need the sacrifice because he was the once for all payment for sin. And by the way, that's why the Catholic Mass is irrelevant. And we don't sacrifice Christ day after day after day after day after day anymore. We don't do it with lambs. We don't do it with wafers. We don't do it with wine. It was a once for all payment for sin. Inside the tabernacle, the table of showbread represented God's provision of food for Israel in the desert. But Jesus announced in John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger. And by the way, he was in, he was in kind of an argument right there with the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were, were saying, we are children of God through Abraham. Our fathers walked through the desert. We received the manna from God. And Jesus said, I am that manna. I am the manna. I am the bread of life. On the other side of the room was the golden lampstand, which provided all the light that was needed in, within the tabernacle. And Jesus said of himself, John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. And he who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life, spiritual life, eternal life. And then there was the altar of incense where the priests would pray for the people and pray that God would send his Savior. And the author of Hebrews tells us, because he, that's Jesus, lives forever, he holds his priesthood permanently. And the point the author is making there is, there is no priest who ever held the priesthood permanently. Even the high priests die. And they have to be replaced. Not so, Jesus Christ. He is the high priest permanently. Therefore, Here's his argument. He is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him since, listen, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He never leaves the altar. You remember when he put the, 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 his disciples in the boat and said, hey, cross the lake, I'll be with you in a while. And where did he go? To the mountain to pray. And he prayed. You think he didn't know the storm was coming? It was the perfect storm. And Jesus sent them into it. Now ponder the implications of that. And who is he praying for? Text doesn't tell us. I think he's praying for them. He always lives to make intercession for them, for us. 
And by the way, it's the same story where Jesus comes walking out on the water, and it's hysterical. It's, I think, meant to be humorous the way Mark writes it, and he says that Jesus was walking across the water in the storm and, and, uh, and, and almost passed by the boat as if he didn't notice them. You know, oh, what are you guys doing out here? Well, I'm just taking a walk on the water. And, the, and they were scared. Uh, I'd be too. But there's kind of a humorous ring to that when you read it. But then, most important of all, Holy of Holies, Ark of the Covenant, which represented the very presence of God. People will ask me sometime, once in a while, and we get talking about Old Testament kind of stuff, and um, once in a while somebody will ask me, what do you think the Ark of the Covenant is? You know what my answer is? Who cares? <laughs> Listen, if we had the Ark of the Covenant, you know what we would do? We'd worship it. You remember the Old Testament? Back in the, in the, in the desert, people were rebelling against God, and he sent judgments to them. One of them was snakes. You remember that? And they sent these fiery serpents, King James says, and they came in, they were fiery because when you got bit by one, it felt like fire, that venom just felt like fire. I don't know that from experience, but that's what I'm told. So Moses goes to God and he says, what do we do? And uh, God says, object lesson here. They need to learn to trust me. Make a pole, put a bronze snake on top, stick it in the middle of the camp, by the tent of meeting. Anybody gets bit by a snake, they go to the, they go to the uh, uh, tent of meeting and they... They look and live. Look at the serpent. Trust me. I'm telling you to do something that's weird and bizarre. I'm going to tell you more things like that because I want you to trust me. Go and look at the snake. Be cured. You know what Jesus said? If the Son of Man be lifted up, I will draw all men to me. But here's the thing about that snake on the stick. Snake on a stick. (laughs) They kept it after the serpents were gone, even after they entered into the promised land, even after they settled and we read about the kings, we have the prophets and then the kings, it was during the period of the kings, so we're talking about centuries later, there was a statement, and I, and I didn't look it up, it just came to me, um, but there was a statement about the idolatry of the people, and they had a pole with the serpent on it. It was the very one that Moses made, and they had given it a name, Nahushtan. And they worshipped it. And God said, destroy it. If we had the Ark of the Covenant, we'd worship it. We'd worship it. Never going to find that thing. Indiana Jones or not. (laughs) And here's why. We don't need a golden ark to represent God anymore. We have Christ. We have Christ. He is the living revelation of God. John 14, 9, Jesus said, I have been with you so long, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip. He who has seen me has seen the Father. You don't need an ark. You don't need light. You don't need anything. You need me. I and the Father are one. If you see me, you've seen the Father. And the Father is invisible. I am God in flesh. I am the visible manifestation of God. And that's where we're going, by the way, in this text. This is where he's going. Verse 18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. That's where John is going. I've often tried to imagine what it must have been like for the high priest to step behind the curtain into the most holy place where the walls are covered in solid gold. The light is reflected everywhere. The lamp stands just outside. But... And then you consider the fact that if the Shekinah glory had settled in there, there wasn't any need for a lamp. Kind of like Revelation. No need for sun or moon or stars. The light would come from God himself. For the very Shekinah glory of God settled there, And what appeared as something like fire and smoke, the high priest had to step into that. It was glory. His fearful, terrifying glory. But all the bragging rights. (laughs) Look at what, I I can't even tell you what I've seen. It's glory. Glory. 
And look at what John says, verse 14. And the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us, and we beheld his glory. Just as God had pitched his tent right in the middle of the nation of Israel and traveled with them for 40 years in the wilderness, so the Lagos came in the person of Christ and pitched his tent among Israel for over 30 years. And John says, we beheld his glory. And it was the glory of his his deity and humanity, it was the, the glory of his character, it was the glory of his healing, it was the glory of his teaching. But in case, in case there was any doubt that the glory didn't extend beyond all of that, John got to see even more. I mean, it must have been a glorious thing to listen to him teach and to watch him cleanse the lepers, talk about cleansing, give sight to the blind, talk about light, healing the deaf and the lame and calming the storm and even giving life to the dead. Beyond all that, John got to be one of three disciples who was there on the mountain. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 17, and not much more after this, but Matthew 17, verses 1 through 6. Six days later, verse 1, six days later, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, his brother, and, and led him up the high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun. And his garments became white as lightning. I just want you to interpose right here. Shekinah glory. You say, where's the smoke? It's coming. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with them. And Peter said to the Lord, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, we will make three tabernacles, three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And while he was still speaking, watch this, a bright cloud. You hear you have light or fire and smoke overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud said this, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. In other words, he speaks for me. Notice the disciples. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground and were terrified. That's, that's worship. They saw the glory of God. They did exactly what Isaiah did. Did exactly what John did when he had his vision of heaven. Face down. Thought he saw God. Face down. It's amazing. And Jesus was gloriously unique in his humanity. He was gloriously unique in his deity. What does that have to do with you? Everything. It should drive us to worship. I was thinking after the second service, I, I, I sometimes learn by you know, hearing what, uh, this is going to sound weird, but sometimes I say things up here that I don't plan on saying, and when I get done, I think, well, that's led me to a whole new train of thought. And here's what I thought after the first service. You, you, want, you want to inform your prayers. You want some structure to think about. We're trying to learn this as a church, especially those of you who have been showing up for our prayer times, Right? And learning to use the Lord's Prayer. Here's another structure. You're, you're in, that, in that hallowed be thy name section. You're trying to worship God, and you're thinking, I'm, I'm groping for ideas, for texts of scriptures, for whatever to help me worship God. Think about the tabernacle. Just, just go to the altar and ponder the meaning of that in Christ. Go to the labor, the washing. Ponder the meaning of that for you in Christ. Go to the lampstand. Go to the table of showbread. Go to the, the altar of incense where the Lord always lives to make intercession for you. Go to the Ark of the Covenant where there is the law and where there is Abraham's, I mean, uh, uh, Aaron's rod and the testimony. 
and the presence of God sitting on the mercy seat where you have received mercy. I bet you could spend a lot of time worshiping God for who he is and how he has revealed himself in Scripture, in the tabernacle, in the temple, in the sacrifices, in the priesthood, in all of it. And it shouldn't lead you to legalism. It should lead you to worship. To worship. I got two more pages of my sermon, but we're not going there today. Because we need to end here. And not because of time, but because I want you to leave you, I want you to leave here pondering worship pondering the glory of Christ, the excellencies of Christ. We exist to proclaim the excellencies of Christ in all things, right? We need to learn the excellencies of Christ. Oh, beloved, read this text and behold the excellent glory of our one and only solitary, unique Son of God, our Savior, the Logos, the Word, the life, the light, Jesus Christ. The mystery and glory of the incarnation of Christ, oh beloved, it should drive our souls to wonder and awe and praise. Father, we praise you and our praises fall short as we try to ponder the glory of your majesty. And we only know it as it is revealed to us in this book. And Lord, even when we, when we make our feeble attempts at worship, we're reminded of how bound we are to this flesh and how much we long to experience the freedom of the sons of God in your presence. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Come and do what you have promised. Free us from this place and take us into the tabernacle of God in heaven where we will worship you unfettered by our flesh or by the presence and power of sin. Oh, Father, be glorified in that. But be glorified also in us today as we consider the glory of Christ in these things and warm our hearts to how great you are. Help us to use the word awesome appropriately because this is awesome. Because you are awesome. And may we find ourselves like the, the wise men who, when they entered the house and saw Jesus, they fell on their faces and worshiped. Oh, Father, we need your help as we seek to be faithful worshipers, joyful worshipers of our Savior and our God, Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.